Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Friday, January 22nd, 2021. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? It's going well. Yesterday was Squirrel Appreciation Day. <laughs> so I was awesome. really upset that we didn't record yesterday so I could oh. shout out to the four squirrels who chase each other around my backyard. That's excellent. It was also the 21st day of the... Oh, yes. The, I don't know. There's lots of 21s going on. At the, like around whatever... 921. Milita- <laughs> yeah. yeah, military time, which 20. I always have to do advanced math to figure out. Yes. Um, our older son came down and he was like, it's the 21st, second of the 21st, 21st minute, like did the whole thing. And by the time he said it, it was done and over with. Yeah. But it was special <laughs> while it lasted. Yeah. I'm sure. I did think about it. It was funny that, thank you for letting us record today. I had a an online history pub quiz that I wanted to join in on. <laughs> That was run out of England. So they they were doing it at nighttime for them. So we did actually pass for them the 21st minute, blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, nine hours earlier. So it was like 1.30 here or 1.21 here. So I was able to prepare because otherwise I would not have known that it was going to happen. I have a, a, a live drawing session and it's based in the UK and I'm not sure how to figure out like I have to figure out the timing of it because I think it's five o'clock in the morning my time Ooh. if it's you can, in the afternoon there if you know their time you can go into Google or your fa- other favorite search engine and put in the time and put in like GMT and it'll tell okay. you or whatever yeah, the time is yeah I that was what I had that. to do to make sure that I was getting in at the right time okay but for us we've passed all that we're moving on <laughs> to our exciting podcast. Ah, in such a better mood this week. Anyway, we will have on the needles, on the easel, on the table, and on the nightstand. Sorry, my notes are narrower than normal, and I don't have my my sidebar that tells me everything. So all the usual things, but so much goodness, start with on the needles. So many finished objects. Oh my gosh. So I finished my white elephant mystery knit along shawl, which was an advent collaboration between Forbidden Fiber and the designer of FIFA. The yarn was Fortitude. I think that's just a fingering base. Sometimes she'll have the, the, the yarn blend will be one thing, but it'll come in different weights. But this was a fingering one. Uh, you got 18 different colors of yarn. You got to open them all like an advent calendar. It was super fun. The pattern ended up being three giant squares. They kind of look like granny squares if you, you know, have seen those, which is mostly a crochet thing, but this was knitting. So you had three squares that started in the middle and worked their way out. The colors were pretty much random. I did a little bit of jiggering. And then when I got to the end, I did open, I think, the last three packages all at once just to make sure that my final colors at least would work well together because they would actually be touching and And it was interesting to see how it all finished up since it was random. One of my squares was definitely more pastel, I think, than the others. And the other two had more of the Christmas colors and jewel tones. And anyway, it turned out really nice. It's quite large. It's definitely a wrap. 1,330 yards. Did you use all of it? No, I had about three quarters of 
or so that so that works out to about a little over three of the skeins of yarn. And I had about I think 76 grams left, so about three quarters. So but most of it. Yeah. So that was good. Yeah, it's nice and cozy. I can wrap it around myself in an evening and you know, keep the chill off, but still still be able to knit. So that's exciting. And it was really fun. So I liked that one. And then Last time I was waiting for yarn to arrive from Neighborhood Fiber Company for their fundraiser for Fair Fight and her Stacey Abrams colorway in a, a DK weight. And it arrived and it was gorgeous, wound it up and started knitting. And it was great because I had used this yarn before in my brickyard pullover. So I had an entire sweater's worth of a gauge swatch. So I didn't have to wait to do that, which is always the most annoying thing. And I decided to do a Hearthstone pullover by Isolde Teague. And that came in a booklet that was organized by, I think, Tin Can Knits a few years ago. And it was a fundraiser for some sort of malaria organization. The sweaters, also, they're all bottom-up raglans. And so the, the sleeves and the bodies all start the same. And then each designer put their own spin on the yoke. And so I've done one of these before. I did the Lionheart last year, two years ago, which was in kind of the magenta and then had the black stri black stripes on the sleeves and the striped hood as well. And I really liked that one. So I was excited to do another one. Uh, I had 10 days to do it and I finished. So exciting. Yep. So I got That's to wear it for- astounding. <laughs> it, it, uh, I got to say, I was pretty impressed with myself. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was pretty much the only thing I worked on. It's also like the sleeves- and the body are all just stuck in it. So there was really very little thinking going on until you got to the yoke. And Isolde's design had cables on either side of the raglan edging that kind of come together at the top. So that was really cool and not terribly complicated, but I did have to pay attention to, to which cable I was doing. Yeah, so that was really, that was fun. I'm really pleased. It's super comfy. For some reason, my sleeves are a smidge short. Um, hopefully when I block it, I, I did not have time to block it. So I guess it's not technically totally done, but I've worn it. So whatever. Now you're just splitting hairs. Yeah. Maybe they'll get that extra smidge, but they fit fine. The body fits well. The shoulders fit well. I was a little worried because I was knitting it so fast. I didn't want to take the time to put it on waist yarn and try it on and make sure it's like, I'm really not going to have time to redo anything if it doesn't fit. So I'm just going to finish it. <laughs> we'll see what happens and then I can deal with it. Yeah. But it fits really well. I did have to redo one of the sleeves. So actually I knit three sleeves because I had a plan for the yarn because hand dyed yarn, each skein can look a little different. So some of them were a little bit darker than the other ones. And my thought process was not entirely logical. So when I finished, I had two sleeves that were completely different and the body was going to be totally different. I was like, this is not going to work. It's going to annoy me. I don't know that anybody else would notice. I sent it to a picture of it to a knitting friend and she's like, oh, it looks great. I'm like, no, that's not, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so uh, I ripped the sleeve back and knit it alternating skeins. So I knit a row with one skein, knit a row with the other skein and keep switching. And it just makes the whole thing look a little more even U unified. Yeah. Yeah. So I did that. Um, so it was just for the one sleeve. And again, it was just stuck in it. It went pretty fast. Yeah. So that was done. That's huge. That was huge. I was pretty pleased with that. And then sort of randomly in the middle of that, 
I think it was all the stockinette overload. My brain decided I needed to start working on one of my New Year's resolutions for knitting, which was to work on my works in progress and figure out what I was doing with those. Because I have a drawer that has just kind of things that have gotten stuck and I put them away. And I had in my brain this pair of socks that I think was for Simon that I had been working on years ago. I don't even know how long. And I thought it was in that drawer. I was like, I'll pull that one out. It's complicated. It's like cables and all this crazy stuff. Like, let's pull that out, see what we want to do. And I'll work on that That because that can be something different from the miles of stockinette. So I'm going through the drawer. I can't find it. But I did find another pair of socks. I was like, oh, these are really nice. Let's work on these. <laughs> and I looked it up. I found the pattern. I mean, I have the pattern in or the project page in Ravelry. I started it in July 2013. They have been sitting in that drawer. I can't even do the math. What is that? Like seven, well, six and a half years. I had one entire sock done and then it was just sitting there. And I looked at my project notes and I wrote, ugh, did two repeats and it doesn't fit. So, but I tried it on and it fits fine. So I'm not sure if I ripped back. Are they for you? Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if I had ripped them back already and made it fit or I'm crazy or my foot changed or I don't know, so many possibilities, but the sock that I have fits. So I cast on another one. The sock is Newton by Cookie A, who I don't think she's designing anymore, but she was like the sock designer in the early 2010s. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's so long ago. It's really not, but I hear you. But in knitting world, I think it is. Hey, tread lightly here. (laughs) Well, that's true. I don't even know when, I mean, I probably started that blue sweater in like 2007. No. Yes. We didn't know each other then. I mean, no, we didn't know each other then. Not in 2007. Okay, you're right. You're right. Maybe 2009. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's much more reasonable. I don't think that's true either, but it's like a total squirrel jungle back in the yard right now. And I'm distracted literally by squirrels. squirrels. Yeah. Sorry. That's awesome. So I don't know when I started that sweater and I don't even know how to find out. How about that? (laughs) Yes. So my sock, this was part of her sock club. She had a sock club where I think it was every other month you would get two patterns and a skein of yarn and they would be, you know, exclusive colors to the group. So that was always fun. So the yarn for this one was from Indigo Dragonfly, their Murgoat sock, which is a merino cashmere nylon blend. And it's really nice. I was like, ooh, why did I not finish this? This is really nice sock yarn. My feet are going to be happy. And the colorway is this amazing dark green, like forest green, the official name of which is E Pluribus Nom Nom Nom, out of many jars, one cookie. It's a very long name. So lots of fun. And she, oh, and she would do cookie recipes as well. So you'd get two patterns, a skein of yarn and a cookie recipe. And there was some How really good How is she recipes. not like still around? This is terrible news. <laughs> I know. I mean, I assume she's still around. I think she's just not publishing her designs. So, you know, she did it for a while and then she, maybe she's moved on to other things. I don't know. I haven't seen. Um, so yeah, so I did get started on this pattern. Her Patterns are always, they flow so well. They're so well designed. They make total sense. You definitely have to follow along on the the chart, but you know, you can tell when you've gone wrong. It's not that complicated. 
it, it just, they make sense. They're really, really great patterns. So that was, that was fun. And I've gotten, I got the cuff done and then 24 rows on the leg. So I've got a ways to go, but now that I've finished my sweater, I have some more time. But then I realized that it was something that I had to pay attention to. So it would not work for zoom knitting. First, I was just going to start another sock, you know, just pull out some self-striping yarn, start working on another sock. But then for some reason, my brain couldn't handle that. Like having two socks that I was working on at the same time, despite the fact that I do technically have like 20 socks (laughs) stuffed in various drawers that I guess I'm theoretically working on. I couldn't actually have two of them on my knitting table as like, those are my options, sock A or sock B. Wasn't working for me. So then I thought, oh, a hat, great. Can get back into my charity knitting. That'll be wonderful. And I come across a pattern. I feel like a couple of other podcasters have mentioned it recently. And it's called Snap by Tin Can Knits. You use four strands of fingering weight yarn held together to knit this hat. So it uses up leftovers like nobody's business. So fabulous. So I decided I would use the leftovers from the white elephant shawl because I still had like three quarters of a skein. And it said you needed a little over a hundred grams and I only had about 76, but it also said that included the pom-pom. So I thought maybe it'll be enough. So not actually enough. And I'm about to run out, which is kind of a bummer, but I sent to Courtney for color consultation because right now it starts off, I kind of did my purples and browns in really dark colors. And then I went into green and then I went into dark pink, then lighter pink, and then a great orange, and then orange into like a cream oatmeal color. Yeah. And that's kind of what I have left is creams and and oatmeal. So, but I still need another inch of regular knitting before I get another inch and a half to two inches of crown decreases. And then theoretically a pom-pom on top. So, I mean, I have plenty of yarn, not necessarily this kind of yarn, but fingering weight yarn, but trying to figure out what do I need to rip back and put in another color section. I love where you're at with the colors. I had two thoughts that you could continue with creams, the the oatmeal and the orange, something like that, and just do like a neutral fade all the way to the crown and then do a colorful pom-pom. Or you could start I don't know what you have left, but you don't, you could use different yarn and do like a, like go back to pinks, pink and orange, and then pink and dark pink, and then into the teal, and then maybe do like a purple pom-pom, you know, like Mm. work your way, work your way back out of this, of the striation. That is an idea. Yeah, because I'm sort of afraid if I just go with the creams. I mean, I have whatever colors I I need basically in my giant bin of leftovers because I have a very hard time throwing things away. But what is in that bowl in the picture is all that I have left. So I have two little tiny, Ah. there's like a little bit of yellow and then kind of a beigey and a cream. Yeah, because I'm kind of afraid if I go with the cream, then I'm going to have three inches almost of white-ish which might feel unbalanced with the rest of it. Although if it's on the head and then pom-pom. Yeah, and if you top it off with a colorful pom-pom, yeah, I think might work. if you have still like two thirds of the head to go, it would be okay 
to have the, I don't know. I'm thinking I might pull back some of that white and throw in another yellow or orange before I, and then go back and start the whites. So there's maybe a little bit more color or throw in another, yeah, something like that. We'll have to see. I'll have to dig around and see what I actually have. Cause I'm pretty sure I have like a, a light gray that is actually that same base. Um, so I at least have that. Yeah. It's yeah. a fun project. It is fun. I'm excited and I'm super <clears throat> excited by how quickly it knit up and how much yarn it used up all at once. So that was exciting. So we'll definitely be making that one again, I think. Although that'll probably mean bringing my bin upstairs and sitting it by my chair and really freaking out my husband why this giant bin is taking up living room space. But it's because I'm getting rid of it. That's right. Working on getting rid of it. And that is all that is on the needles. What is on the easel? I drew your yarn the other day after you sent me a picture of that gorgeous scheme that had arrived. And I feel like I should attempt more yarn skeins because they're really fun to draw and it's a great experiment for the dry media stuff but this is my sketchbook that I've been working in with just colored pencil and pastel and chalk and neocolor and it is some things are great some things are just a complete mess and I'm making a lot of mistakes this is what I'm going to work in for the 100-day project. So it will be just sort of the daily exercise of, of moving around something that isn't a paintbrush because my comfort zone is definitely the paintbrush. And I think that it's good to go back and work on my drawing skills. And so that is, I don't even, I don't know how to like frame or shape the project in a meaningful way for anybody, but in my head, I don't really have an agenda for it except to explore. So I'm going to work on recovering this book today, this sketchbook. um, Yeah, I was going to, sorry, I was going to say that I feel like not everything has to be totally like project-based. Yeah, it can just be playing around. right? Right. And I think I need more of that. So I, here in San Francisco, we have a place called Scrap, which is like, the scroungers creative reuse something something program or I don't know it's scrap hyphen sf if you're local most people know about it it's a great resource for teachers and parents and I spent a lot of time there when the kids were in nursery school but one of the gold mine things that happens is chronicle books which is a pub- publishing house here in San Francisco they often donate their book blanks to scrap. So it was meant to be a cookbook and they all have white covers. And then inside is just, this is uncoated white paper and it's pretty decent. It can't really take more than one layer of gouache. So these are not ideal for watercolor or really anything gouache because I always do layers in gouache, but it's thicker than copy paper you know, it's probably like 70 pound paper and it's nice and bright white and it's uncoated. So if you go into scrap and you check it out, like coated paper is sort of shiny. You could draw on it with a Sharpie, I guess, but not, not a lot of other options for it. So I always try to find the uncoated ones. I use these all the time. 
And sometimes I cover them and sometimes I don't, but I found some really pretty fabric that I cannot use for a face mask because it has like a tiny eyelet print to it, which means that it has holes in it. So I'm going to cover the book with this pretty fabric and it's going to be 100 day part one. But the fun part is that because it's That's a book really blank, pretty. Thank you. Because it's a book, a cookbook blank, there are like a couple of recipes at the beginning of it, like white clam pizzas. <laughs> There's a gorgeous roasted vegetable platter that has like a fennel tzatziki that I'm actually going to make. It's, it cracks me up. It brings me joy. Are you going um, to draw a picture of what you've cooked when you cook the recipe and put it next to it? Oh yes, definitely. For sure. I draw a lot of things that I cook and eat. So this has been a great diversion and I have some, I have some plans to take it out into the wild. One of the goals that occurred to me between the last time we chatted and today, or well, last week was that I really benefit from taking myself outside of these four walls and drawing, drawing on location. And so I'm aiming to do that more like once a week-ish this year, with the end result being, again, more just comfort, playful drawing, but also doing a small release of paintings that are local San Francisco scenes. Um, so I took myself over towards Kelly's Mission Rock, which is on the bay side of San Francisco, and there was a hot pink container ship out there that I had noticed when I was driving around with my father-in-law. They're doing a lot of construction by the ballpark. So I wasn't able to get to like a good place where I could see the container ship. I'm hoping it doesn't go anywhere. And I took some pictures, but it's not the same. And I did sketch some cranes that were there right on the waterfront. There's a dry dock over there. That's interest. I don't know why it interests me. I'm not aiming to draw Coit Tower and the Golden Gate Bridge and Transamerica Building and, you know, like not necessarily the iconic San Francisco things, but just a street in Noe Valley. Like Sanchez Street right now is closed off to traffic. It's pedestrian only. And so I I'm, was really trying to get over there this week and draw an urban street scene and I love drawing in Noe Valley, mostly because there's lots of coffee shops and it's easy to sustain oneself over there. I have a lot of ideas about where to, where to go and kind of what I've always wanted to draw. So that has been folded into my, my yearly goals as maybe like a weekly-ish on location. And to simplify my sketchbook and go kit set up because I took 45 pens and I just had too much with me. And really all I needed was a couple pens in the sketchbook. I didn't really need anything else. So then I'm also doing, I did a, an inventory of the Japan paintings and I feel like you rooting around your sock collection. So many that are unfinished. And so deciding what I want to work on and what I can let go of. It's a lot easier to let go of a half-finished painting than a half-finished sock, at least in my estimation. But I've also given myself permission to 
pause Japan and then work on another country and come back to Japan or go back to Australia. I had this really rigid vision in my head of how I was going to explore these different places. And given how my access to books and the library and friends libraries, everything feels really limited right now still. And so I think that relaxing my own arbitrary rules a little bit will open up the project in a way that allows me to continue with a little bit more intensity. You know, instead of saying, oh, I have to paint everything Japanese. I love Japanese food. I'm never going to stop cooking Japanese food. And it's become a huge part of how we eat. It was sort of before I started Lemon Latitude, but we have Japanese or a Japanese inspired meal probably twice a week, maybe three times a week. So it's, I love to eat that way and I don't want to give that up, but I also want to try Iranian dips or Russian mushroom dishes. The structure is really good for having focus, but if it gets in the way of experiencing multiple things and bringing you joy, then it's not doing its purpose. And, and the library, I mean, I was so reliant. I am so reliant on the library and it's weird what comes in fast and what doesn't. And not that that wasn't the case before, but it's certainly less. (laughs) More random. It's so random. and Really random. It's not like we can go in and have the serendipity of what's next to this book on the cookbook shelf. So that has been lost. And, and so I'm just trying to open it up in different ways that allow myself more flexibility to explore. Yeah. And I, I feel like I must be in a little bit of a painting, not lull, but I guess because I'm giving so much attention to, I don't know what, I don't know what, I don't know what's got my attention. You're mentally recharging or creatively recharging. Creatively recharging. I like that. Yeah. Obviously that's what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's all good. All right. On, On the table. Yeah. Excellent. So yes, I'm going great guns on my, uh, my resolutions. I had the one where exploring grains. So I picked buckwheat for January because I had a box of it in the pantry. <laughs> so I just started with that. Uh, and we do like it. We've had it before. So I, I you know, kind of knew what I was doing and knew it wouldn't be a complete failure. Like if so you can it find- is not, it is not wheat. It's, it's a grass. Oh, there you go. Cause we were, oh, we were talking about this when you were going Japanese shopping, if you can find just buckwheat noodles, they, they are gluten-free, but usually people throw regular flour in there, so they aren't. Oh, I guess I could pull those out too. I think I still have a packet of them. I have had trouble cooking the 100% buckwheat ones. They get really goopy, so I've got to figure out how to make that not happen because they kind of all clump together, even if you stir and stir and stir. Like once you dump them out of the water, they go bleh which is not super fun to eat. Well, speaking of Blair, <laughs> I'm going to interject a story. Please when do. we were when we were in the Dolomites and we didn't really recognize a lot on the menu of this one place that was like um they were trying to be authentic Latin cuisine, which is that one little pocket of the Dolomites 
all of the food that they love to eat up there. You know, and it was things like rabbit and deer and the kids weren't really into that. And one of the options was a buckwheat taco. And so Matthew ordered the buckwheat taco and it might've been a starter. I don't know if it was his appetizer. I can't quite remember, but it came out and it was a buckwheat taco shell stuffed with roasted vegetables, I think. And he just took one look at it. This is a couple years ago. And he is pretty adventurous when it comes to eating in foreign countries, like he'll choke it down. <laughs> but he just looked at it like, this is not what I was expecting from a taco. And we all tried it and it was pretty bland. I think the buckwheat hmm. needed some major help. Yeah. Unless you're a huge fan of buckwheat. <laughs> so I'm That's really excited to hear. So more like doing. a crispy crepe? Yeah, it was like they had made a tortilla out of buckwheat. Huh. Interesting. Okay. So the first thing I did, I did not do tacos. Uh, I just did kasha with mushrooms, which is kind of a just a basic. You make the kasha, you saute some mushrooms, you put them together. Not complicated. So that's just kind of a side dish. For round two, I went with kasha califior from my short stack cauliflower book. And it is apparently a recipe of Eastern European Jewish origin and is usually made with bow tie pasta and kasha instead of cauliflower and kasha. And it also has a whole bunch of caramelized onions. And you are supposed to cook it in chicken fat, which I did not. <laughs> I just use butter. Frankly, that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> I know, but then like I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Well, I A, know. I didn't have chicken fat hanging around and B, vegetarian. So, oh yeah, well. but it did sound kind of delicious. I'm sure he would have loved it. I'm sure he would have too. It would have been amazing. Um, so it was, it was good. It was one of those things like, you know, it's all these simple steps, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of them and caramelizing onions takes a while. Cooking kasha is really simple. So that part was easy. And then, you caramelize the onions and throw the cauliflower florets in for the last bit to steam, more or less steam, and then mix it all together. So it was interesting. It's not probably my favorite dish. It was definitely different. Caramelized onions always make things a little special. So that was good. I think I roasted a chicken as well for the rest of us. And then husband just had that. And I think the salad that we all had. It was a pretty good meal. Definitely different. And then tonight I'm going to try buckwheat crepes, actually. So maybe I'll make it a taco. Well, I just found an awesome sounding recipe while, you, while we were talking about that from You Say Tomato Cooking. Ooh. And it's a, I mean, this doesn't fit the bill for you guys, but a buckwheat taco with grilled salmon, bacon, avocado, greens, <laughs> and a bunch of other good stuff. That's what the recipe's called. And if that that That's, sounds delicious. Sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's like a BLT plus salmon in a crepe, in a taco. Yeah. Crepe. And that's taco. exactly what buckwheat needs, frankly. Is <laughs> <laughs> bacon? Is bacon. I mean, everything needs bacon. I know. Really. I'm so sad that you're off the bacon <sighs> train because it was really fun for a while when uh, everything was yeah. bacon related. Those were the days. I know. Those were the days. No. It comes in every once in a while, generally around birthday time. I should paint another bacon bookmark and put it into my upcoming art sale. <laughs> <laughs> that is my favorite bookmark. I'm so glad. I love it so much. Yeah. I think the hardest part is not being able to put 
pancetta in Brussels sprouts. There's always chicken fat. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, Just I guess kidding. I guess truffle oil is going to have to be my my go-to substitute, but I haven't. It's it's just not exactly the same. Maybe that Nom Nom Paleo mushroom powder. Mm, yeah. Or what about, do they like miso? Oh, that's an idea. Miso butter on Brussels sprouts, especially if you do the red soybean one, oh, is okay. amazing. It almost mm. doesn't even need butter. It's so good. Wow. Okay. I will make a note. Uh, yeah. And so I'll report back on the crepes. I mean, they're going to be basic crepes. I think I'm putting chard and cheese in my husband's and then I have ham and cheese for the boys and me probably. I usually end up doing a combo because I can't totally give up my meat, but I do like to have a little more veggies. So then I was done with all the buckwheat experiments. I also came across a post on Instagram of a vegan Salisbury steak, but I found very intriguing and it took me down this whole rabbit hole. Remind me what Salisbury steak is in its non-vegan form. <laughs> so it's basically, it's like a hamburger, but it's sort of more oblong and has, I think of it as having carrots and stuff. The key part here is like a mushroom gravy that goes on top. I grew up in a town called Salisbury, incidentally. <laughs> so this always cracks me up. Yeah, it's all about the mushroom gravy, really. That's how I feel about chicken marsala. So you're going to veganize this. Well, other people are going to veganize <laughs> Actually, just vegetarian. Vegetarianize okay. it. And gluten-free it, too. Because, so the, the post was originally from the Yarn Harlot, who is an amazing knitter. She writes really funny knitting books. She's great. And she is a vegan, so she posted, she's been posting lately a lot of her food things that she's been making. So I was like, oh, that sounds really good. My people like Salisbury steak, but maybe if this is actually good, I don't have to make two kinds, which would be lovely. So she had a link to her post, uh, to the recipe that she had used. And it was from Rabbit and Wolves. It looked really good, except that it called for a cup of vital wheat gluten, which I'm guessing is not gluten-free. <laughs> and that to, was kind of one of the binding agent and to give it that meaty feel. So I knew that wasn't gonna work. The vital part has me. Yeah, I, I don't booked. know. I'm booked. <laughs> That's not something I have used, but it used lentils and the gluten, and some, and some other things. The, the, the part that I thought was really interesting was she used tamari and liquid smoke to give it that meaty flavor. So I was like, okay, we'll hold on to that. We'll hold on to the lentils. Basically what it is, is like a lentil burger, right? So I went searching for that. Cookie and Kate had one that was actually lentils and chickpeas, and it had a lot more vegetables in it, carrots, and, and I think they use breadcrumbs and maybe an egg for the binder. So I did a little bit of mix and match. It wasn't perfect. Um, they, they didn't hold together quite as well as I would have liked. So they were a little crumbly and didn't, ex they definitely did not entirely feel like meat, but they were tasty and the mushroom gravy was really good. And that was slopped over the top. So, I mean, that's really the point of it. So that was good. We had mashed potatoes with it and I don't know, broccoli or green beans, something super simple. We're having a mushrooms for the win kind of week. Yeah. Yeah. They are good. Good stuff. Yep. And apparently I'm really into my, my ground meat because I decided to vegetarianize the Parmesan herb turkey burgers. And actually I made them into meatballs. Tell me more. I just use the Beyond Meat. They have packets oh, of really? ground meat. 
So they were they weren't turkey. They were a little more meaty, but it's still the same mint and whatever else is in there. And that it actually works really well. And then my other problem with doing burgers is that then you feel like you have to have a bun and I have to get two kinds of buns and then they just sit around for weeks and it's just annoying. So it's like, all right, meatballs. And I baked them off. So that was super easy and it worked really well. I think we served them with rice and, you know, some sort of vegetable and, and everyone was pretty happy with that. So they, they were good. I mean, everyone loves that recipe anyway. So it was just nice to have another way to, to serve it. Well, that's, that's really cool to hear about because I haven't heard anybody talking about cooking with the Beyond Meat stuff, those products. So yeah, is I this your they first were... time cooking with them? No, no, oh. I've, I've been switching to that a decent amount now. I'm okay. just tired of doing two different batches of everything uh yeah and my kids will eat it so okay so I'll I'll make them yeah I think it's a good substitute and actually food 52 did a an article where they used the beyond meat in like five different meatball recipes we're talking about how to get it crispy and whatnot but I I haven't really found that to be a problem it's a pretty it's not a you know a hundred percent exact substitute but it works pretty well so while you were talking about this this recipe and you mentioned liquid smoke you've You've tried liquid smoke before. You did a cookie with it, I think, a uh-huh. couple couple weeks ago. And I have only ever heard of it in barbecue stuff. And I yeah. don't have the one time that I've used it, I did not have a good reaction to it because I, I don't know, I had some cheapy version from Safeway. So while you were talking, I looked up liquid smoke. I was listening, but you know. That's fine. And I found this, uh, speaking of Food 52, I found this awesome smoked shoyu, which is from Japan. And it's like $52 a bottle. It looks amazing. And now I have to figure out how to find this and maybe not pay $52 a bottle for it. Although maybe that's what, oh, sorry, $28 a bottle. Oh, there you go. It's a bargain. Haku Japanese shoyu. Interesting. Which is like smoked soy sauce. I don't, I don't think it's gluten-free though. You know, it doesn't say- well, if it's Jap- well, I guess if it's soy sauce, then probably not. If it's tamari, then maybe you might have to dig around a little more. Well, it matters for you. It doesn't matter for me. I'll. <laughs> that's true. But what a beautiful bottle. Anyway, liquid smoke. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm true. doing. Yeah. Here on well, this and yeah, and I have it, so I kind of if I see a recipe that that uses it, I'm I'm looking for a way to to use it up. It's not a big bottle, but you don't use very much. Well, I'm excited to find this fancy version of liquid smoke, but I do have a smoked sea salt that I really like. So it's not that I don't like the flavor. It's that I hadn't found a good liquid smoke yet. There you go. So I'm glad we had this conversation. Really for research purposes and for the good of our listeners, you really need to invest in the fancy show you. What else am I going to do? We're, we're all stuck at home. I know. My, my, I'm climbing the walls if, if $28 soy sauce brings me joy. <laughs> Seems a bargain at twice the price. All right. So what have you been cooking? I did a, a little bit of baking, I guess, over the past couple weeks. I made some raspberry almond buttermilk scones that I threw some oats into. I had buttermilk and I had raspberries that needed to combine basically to make something gorgeous. And so 
I made the scones and then it had a beautiful glaze with fresh raspberries and confectioner sugar and a little bit of milk. And I didn't use any of the milk, just the fresh raspberries. And it was so bright pink and beautiful. And everyone really appreciated those. And it was nice to have the oats and the almonds in there because it made for like a really textural scone. They felt very healthy, <laughs> if that can be said of scones. That's what you want in your scone is health. At every chance. Then I had, I guess when I had advertised the last podcast episode, I said something about pickling every available vegetable. And a friend in the city who is also a knitter, she offered to bring me over some of her pickled beets so that I could taste test them. And then she sent me this superb resource for pickling all kinds of vegetables from the crowded kitchen. And I'm really excited to dive into that and do more of those quick pickling things because it goes great on my salads, which still very strong salad game. And it's also really good for the Japanese when we have the Japanese bowls and that kind of thing, because they're really one element of the of the flavor profile in a lot of the Japanese dishes is something pickled. These pickled beets, she did them raw and they have a little bit of rosemary in there. So they're kind of crunchy and they have this rosemary flavor profile and I adore them. My husband, not so much. <laughs> that sounds amazing. They are really good. I'll yeah, send My well, people won't you'll... eat beets either, but yeah, I love them. I love beets too. In fact, I roasted some of the Chiojia beets that I thought I needed to roast them before I pickled them. I kind of wish I just did them raw, but they were starting to lose their crispness. So there will be more pickled beets in my future, all to say. Then last Sunday, I don't know if you saw it in the food section, but there was a mushroom polenta pot pie in the Chronicle. And I did. Uh, yeah. yeah, doesn't that didn't that look amazing? So oftentimes I'll see a recipe in the Chronicle and then the next thing I know the paper's recycled and I forget about it. But I made sure to put that in a safe place. I got everything that I needed for it. You know they're online as well. I do, but but I for, literally forget. Oh, okay. Like, That's fair. Oh, what was, I don't, because I don't read the paper online. Yeah. Because I have an older father-in-law who loves to have the paper. Oh, I love paper. the paper. I love yeah. the paper and paper. So the mushroom polenta pot pie, I did the whole mushroom ragu thing, tiny chopped mushrooms, saute them down in batches, stirred in the sour cream, or it calls for a creme fraiche, but all I had was sour cream and the fresh thyme. And it was so delicious that, and I was going to make the polenta the next night, we ate the entire ragu. So, <laughs> which is classic classic. And you know, mushrooms are so unsatisfying. They're like spinach. You need True. six times as much as you think because it shrinks down to nothing. So it wasn't hard to eat all of the ragu because A, it was delicious and B, 20 ounces of mushrooms is like two servings, you know? Anyway, I am totally into making this recipe, the polenta part, because we love polenta and we love pot pie and it sounds so good. And I will 
I just have to go get a ton of mushrooms and make it again. Yeah. So I can really only take credit for half of the mushroom pot pie. But it was starting off well, so. Yeah, and the recipe sounds delicious and I want the world to have it. So it did, yeah. we'll get that out. Then that same day, while I was cutting up mushrooms and uh, we also needed something sweet in our lives. And so we had a little taste test for those brownie cookies from the 100 cookies cookbook and i hadn't made these the first time through and it's a different process you melt down the chocolate with butter and then all of the wet ingredients are in the bowl and it's a lot of egg white fold it all together then you let the dough needs to sit on the countertop 20 minutes to sort of combine and absorb everything, I guess. Otherwise it's like pancake batter. Okay. So I let it sit and then you can spoon a little bit of peanut butter on top. And then I feathered it with a toothpick and I did add a little sea salt because I felt like it needed that contrast. They come out more like a meringue texture, like Mm a, not hard. It's more, I'm sorry. I meant macaron, not macaroon, macaron but they were delicious and devoured. And, but I posted them. And when I went to post them on our IG account, you had baked from 100 cookies. I know that was hilarious. <laughs> Apparently it was the Sunday of baking. Yeah. I did the olive oil sugar cookies with blood orange glaze, which we had talked about, but neither of us had done because it wasn't really blood orange season yet. And I'd kind of had them in my mind that as soon as I saw that on my produce box I wanted to grab some and so I could make it just because they were so pretty that the glaze just turns out amazing so pretty so they were really good you mostly just taste the glaze which is fine (laughs) um (laughs) the sugar cookies are maybe a little less sweet because you have the olive oil in there and again my gluten-free flour made it a little extra crumbly so they were really hard to work with I think if it had been regular flour they would have been easier to work with because you have to make the dough and then let it refrigerate for a couple hours and it was just super super crumbly but Mm. they were fine and then the glaze was amazing I think I could have used a little more of the orange juice in there I I was worried about it being too thin and that it would just all fall off the cookies and I think I didn't have quite enough it was still a little bit thick and not spreading as much as I would have liked they were beautiful color though oh they were gorgeous yeah that was one of the best parts about it I mean, they tasted really good. The other part that I found was fun was I didn't tell my family what the flavor was. So they're looking at it and they're thinking pink. Oh, it's strawberry or raspberry or something. And then they taste it and they're like, this is not what I was expecting, but I like it. And then they were confused when I said it was blood orange because that's usually darker. But when you mix it with all the powdered sugar. So it's almost kind of like the raspberry glaze that you made for your scones, except with blood orange juice. Perfect. Yeah. So those were good. That was a fun coincidence, both of us baking from 100 cookies again. It was kind of stress baking because it was right before the inaugural stuff. Yeah. I want to check out those chocolate ones, though. The brownie cookies? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would work really well with a gluten-free flour because it doesn't really call for that much. It's really about the... It's the egg whites, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So I think you'll have good luck with those. And I do recommend the the peanut butter, not a lot. It's just like a little bit of peanut butter on top. It's so good. And then last night I made a cookie that 
I was just really curious about. So when I started researching Russia, now I've been to Russia. I went to Russia in 1992, which was a really weird time to go. And it's a long and fascinating story. I spent like six weeks there when I was in high school and the KGB took my chemistry homework. So good. But anyway, that's kind of why I want to jump into Russia because I have all these stories about it. And I remember a lot about traveling there. And one of the things that I didn't remember was I didn't remember very much about their sweets. I remembered a lot of their savory dishes and we did go mushroom picking and they had tons of pickled things and we were not allowed to eat any of their fresh produce at the time. It was, you know, it was only four years after Chernobyl. So people were just not sure about anything. So in my research, one of the recipes that I came across was these goose feet cookies. And I can't even pronounce the Russian version. Gosin lapki or something like that. Gusini lapki. And they're made with a farmer's cheese. That's the base of it. And I saw farmer cheese when I was out at that Russian market on Geary Street. And I picked up a container of it. And I have been putting it on my toast for breakfast, but I knew I needed half of it to try these cookies. So I made them last night and cookie is kind of a stretch. It's more of a pastry dough, an enriched pastry dough. And the farmer's cheese acts like almost like cream cheese would if you were making like a sweet empanada here. I'm jumping around with my my culinary references. I did it in the food processor and it's flour, egg yolk, farmer cheese, grated butter, like cold grated butter. So it feels like a pie dough when you're building it. And then you chill it. Roll a rough it out. Puff. Yeah, a rough puff. But there's no sugar in the dough. It The sugar is in the layering. So then when you cut these rounds out of the, the you got to roll the dough really thin and you then you press one side of the round into granulated sugar, fold it in on itself press the half moon into granulated sugar, fold it in on itself, and then press the top of the goose foot in it, and then put the the unsugared side down on the pan. And then it puffs up, like, and it's because it's triangular, it looks like a cute little <laughs> goose foot. I just wanted to try this out. I made- It looks I, pretty delicious on the Instagram post. Yeah. I, and I had a little, that dish is like from Finland, I think is the closest I could get. <laughs> they were really simple. They're, they're not very sweet at all. Cause there's no sugar in the dough. It's just on those, those outer layers. So it's not really sweet. I think they'd be good. I don't know, maybe dipped into like, like a fondue, like melted chocolate or something like that. Or maybe like were- an afternoon tea or coffee thing. Yeah, they're definitely or morning, not, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's definitely not a sugary indulgence. And I was just really curious about what this cookie was like. And, and so the family liked them, you know, nobody's asking me to make the rest of the dough today, but <laughs> it was a good experiment. It's fun to be back at it with the trying different recipes from wherever. Oh, yeah. You're kind of doing pickles of the world is really what this project is about, aren't you? (laughs) Pickles and cookies of the world. It sounds sounds like a good plan. Lemon latitude in theory, cookies and pickles. 
that's what it actually is. All right, so on the nightstand. So first of all, before I talk about my books, I wanted to say I have come up with a new on the horizon goal, <laughs> which I thought we're of just gonna, after. We're just going to, sorry, we're just going to add stuff to our on the horizon. It's still January. That's right. I feel like it's totally legit. And I didn't have a really good goal. It was kind of like, well, I'm going to try and find a reading challenge. And it's like, yeah, that's not good. But books in translation, which is sort of limited that too, but not exactly. Like, I don't care where it's from. I just want it to be a translation. So I might just go with the Booker International shortlist from last year. I love this I... idea. Yeah, because I there was, um, what was I listening to? Oh, what, what should I read next? And she's saying Americans read like 90% of their books are an English language original. Very few books that have been translated. So I thought that would be a good goal. Absolutely. I feel like I'm... I'm kind of ahead of the game on that one. Yeah, you are. But but again, it's also harder to find those books. So allowing yourself the, sometimes they take longer because they don't have 85 copies of them at the library. Right. Although I went and go, oh, let me put the Booker Prize International winner on hold. And it was available immediately on ebook. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not ready. I wanted, I wanted it to sit on my list for a while that I would get to it in a month or two. I know. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, but I but then I didn't want it right now because I have 20 other books that I currently have out. So some of which I will tell you about right now. So first of all was Over the Woodward Wall by A. Deborah Baker, who is actually Seanan McGuire. I've read several of her books. And I think this one is, excuse, a little bit younger. Maybe not kids, but like middle grade readers. And it's really interesting. So I forget which book she mentions this in, but characters in another of her book have read this book. And so then she went ahead and read the book, kind of like J.K. Rowling did the history of Quidditch and monsters and whatever, all the textbooks that she wrote for the Harry Potter series. So it's basically like a fairy tale. There's two kids, Zeb and Avery, and they've been neighbors for years. But because the school line runs down the middle of their street. They don't go to the same school, so they've never actually met. And they're also very different kids. Zeb is outdoorsy, and her parents are kind of hippies, and so she doesn't have a lot of schedules, and she kind of does her own thing. And Avery is very grade-oriented and likes to be nice and clean and organized and wins the spelling bee and that kind of thing. And so but one day they both start off to school and they head for the respective roads that'll take them to their schools. And there is construction on both roads, which is really weird. So they just turn and go to the road that runs up the middle that will take them in an alternate route to their schools. They both get there and there's a wall, which is really weird. There shouldn't be a wall. And because it's the book it is, they decide to climb over it and see what happens. They tumble over, they end up in a wood adventures ensue. It's a really good book. She's just an amazing writer. It's them learning to be friends because they're such different kids, but they're on this adventure together. They have to follow the improbable road to the impossible city because it's the improbable road. You can't just take the road. You have to kind of go off the road to find the road. So all that funky fantasy, fable, fairy tale kind of kind of world. Her characters are always really interesting. So that's a fun one. And which I didn't realize is that it is also the first of a series. So it, it works pretty well as a book on its own. There's definitely, definitely a cliffhanger, but I will forgive her. Then I read The Hunting Party by Lucy Foley, 
It's a group of friends that went to college together and they get together every New Year's Eve at some fancy place that one of them sort of picks out and organizes. They have a big New Year's Eve celebration. So this year, the girlfriend of one of the friends has picked out this place that is in a a remote hotel in Scotland and they all get snowed in and there's a death. So it's a mystery and you start off, you know someone has died, but you don't know who, but they're all snowed in. So it's obviously one of them or maybe one of, there's two caretakers on the property. So you're learning about, you know, obviously they've been friends for a long time, but there's secrets and lies and, and all that stuff. So it was, it was a really fun, fun story. I bet it would be really interesting as an audiobook. So that was a fun little, fun little romp, as Courtney likes to say. And I'm looking forward to reading her, her more recent book. Next, I read The Bride Test by Helen Huang. And this is her second book. I've read her first book. She has a third one coming out this summer. I'm very excited. This is a romance. The author was diagnosed with, I forget how she puts it, as being on the autism spectrum as an adult. And so her romances reflect that reality. One of her lead characters is on is on the spectrum, and this is no different. And it's a, it's a really great way that she describes it. I mean, it's her personal experience, so she really knows what it's like and how to explain it to the rest of us that maybe haven't experienced this. So in this one, Kai is single man, lives alone, runs a tech company, uh, but his mom is very concerned because he's not good with people, especially with women. So he, she has decided she's going to find him a bride. <laughs> so she returns to Vietnam. Oh, and dear. Yeah. <laughs> his brother is really good with women. So she's like, your brother's fine. I know he's not married yet, but he's great with women. So I'm not worried about him. You need help you need a wife. And the both of the boys are like, mom, you're nuts. And she's like, all right, but if you, if you do it this once, we'll just try it. And if it doesn't work out, then I won't do it anymore. But if you don't give it a good try, then I'm going to keep doing it. They're like, all right, fine. So she returns to Vietnam and meets me. Me is a single mom. She lives with her daughter and her mom and her grandmother. Kai's mom's offers her this chance basically to come to America for a summer, work in a restaurant and marry her son. <laughs> and the, the marrying the son is optional, but she says, you know, this is, this is what I would like. I think you'd be great. Me's mom says, this is your chance, you know, go to America. You can marry him. You can not marry him, marry him, but for your daughter, you need to, to take this chance. And so she does, she moves in with Kai, shenanigans ensue, sparks fly it ends up well as one might expect because it's a romance. Um, and it was interesting because she, at, at the end, she, the author says her mom was an immigrant and she had never really talked to her about it. But before writing this book, she finally had those discussions with her. What was it really like? And with her mom's permission, used a lot of her, not necessarily experiences, but feelings and, and what she did and, you know, to get that authenticity of what it really is like to to come to a different country and and not really speak the language, but to to want to take that chance and and work hard and make something of yourself. Um, so so it was a really good book. Her romance, her romances are are so sweet. So that was Bride Test by Helen Huang. And then I read Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Ekuyasi, which is two sisters, two twin sisters, and a mom who are from. Lagos, Nigeria. It starts kind of when they're all coming back together, the family home, 
after 10 or so years apart. Something happened to one of the sisters when she was about 12, and it's kind of slowly been driving the family apart. So you go back and forth and find out their past stories, what they've been doing, and then how they are coming back together and reconnecting as as a family. There's a lot of tragedy in the family. There's also some magical realism. The mom believes she's a, a spirit that has decided to stay here instead of remaining in the spirit world. So she kind of has visions and is she just mentally ill or is she actually a spirit woman? So, And also one of the sisters is a chef. So there's a lot of excellent food writing, um, which was really, really enjoyable. And also just getting to see Lagos. I feel like as Americans, we don't usually get a positive picture of, well, really any part of Africa, certainly this specific part of Africa. But, you know, the girls and all their friends are very cosmopolitan. They study in London, they study in Canada, they're all getting PhDs in STEM and getting married in Dubai because that's the best place to party. So you just don't, you don't get that generally. Um, So that was a really, really good view. And again, the food descriptions are fantastic. So that was really good. And the relationship between the mother and her daughters and them trying to reconnect was really beautiful as well. So that was Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Equiasi. And then I read Optimus Daughter by Eudora Welty for my book club. There's a classic. Yeah. So none of us had read it. And apparently it had been on the book club list, but kept getting bumped for like two years. And people were finally like, all right, we have this book. We're reading it. It's like, okay. It's a short book. I think it's definitely good for a book club. I don't know that I'd recommend people read it just for fun. Or if you're in an English class or something like that. I think I read it three times between college and grad school. It just came up a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's beautifully written. There was a ton to talk about. We had a great discussion. It's the story of Laurel, who lives in Chicago, but is from Mississippi. And her father calls her to say he needs to go to New Orleans to see his doctor because he's having some problems. She joins him and his second wife, who is younger than her, and a piece of work. So they go to New Orleans. The dad ends up having surgery and then just kind of fades away. Uh, and then they end up going back to her hometown and you get to meet all of those people. She has a lot of internal monologues and thoughts and definitely good if you're looking for a good book group book. That's not too long. It was only like a hundred and something pages. I think it was originally a story in the New Yorker and she expanded it. What did you think of it? I always love to reread that book. And I think that it's interesting how the father recedes and the and the complexity of their relationship, the, the wife and the daughter. I, I just always, I don't know, it's a comfortable read in hmm. some ways. I think it's the writing. Her cadence is so interesting. Yeah, it was really beautiful. It was super atmospheric. Yeah. There was a lot to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you read it, though. That's a Yeah, that's no, a, I, I think we were, all, we were all glad we had finally gotten to it. We had a great discussion, everyone was excited about that, you know, because a lot of times if everybody just adores a book, there's not that much to say. Or even if it is a great book, it could be not that much to talk about. So I think it's one of those books that more just leaves an impression on you in a way than, yeah, or it just ruminates. Yeah, I finished it and I was like, well, I got to think about this one. (laughs) This is going to sit here for a while and while I ponder it. Yeah, for sure. I read next was Harrow the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. 
which is second in the series following Gideon the Ninth, which is the Necromancers in Space. So probably not for everyone. I adored this book. Oh, so fun. I will say I was so confused at the beginning, which is part and of I, the book. Uh-huh. I, I just have to give you a standing ovation from going to <laughs> the Optimist the daughter, daughter to the Necromancer Necrom in space. Yep. I mean, Monica. <laughs> that count that as some, widely that reading? That is some scope. <laughs> All right, carry on. <sighs> yeah. So anyway, so it's really good. So this is the second one. She has become an assistant to God. They're now battling a monster. There's internal strife with the other, what are called in the book, lighters. They're basically the God's assistants. It's awesome. The, oh, there's so much goodness in this. I mean, <laughs> there's not, there's a lot of badness actually, but the, it's just, it's snarky and intriguing and trying to figure out what was going on was so much fun. And I have a friend who has had read both of these books already and was the one that got me to finally go ahead and actually read them because they'd been sort of in, you know, in the back of my mind for a while. And so I would get to certain parts in the book and text her and be like, what's going on? I'm so confused. She's like, don't worry, don't worry. And so then I got to the end I'm, or I got, you know, like three quarters of the way through I was like, wah. And then I got to the end and I was like, okay. And she's like, I know, but we have to wait till next year for the next one, like 2022, I think, not even this year. So going to be a long wait. So yeah, so that was good. And that is my books. So this stretch of reading, I read a bunch of books. I read The Illness Lesson by Claire Beams, which is a weird, I don't even know how to characterize it. But the story is that this father and daughter, this takes place in like the 1880s, I think, and they have this alternative thought about how to educate girls that during the time when girls weren't really as educated as boys, and they decide that they're going to build this school to educate girls. And this is their second go at it. I guess they had tried, or the father had tried when his daughter was younger, but now she's 28 and she can help. And they bring in another teacher and they are trying to educate this small group of girls in this rural setting. And this strange bird keeps showing up. And it's, I, I honestly, I looked up the bird. It's called the faint heart or something like that. And I can't tell if they're an endangered species or if they were a real bird. It's hard to tell. But when the birds show up and then the girls are... One of the girls is doing weird things and trying to get the whole curriculum off track. We're not sure what's going on, but they start treating the girls for their hysteria, of course, in a really, there's no other way to say this, but triggering way. So this is not a book for everyone. It is strange and it I didn't expect this twist and I didn't really welcome it. And in fact, I skimmed over the portions uh, where they're treating and I'm using air quotes for Monica here. Yeah, I didn't totally love it. The, the grounding factor of this book though, is that the author is a physician and she has done a ton of research about how doctors would treat 
women and young girls for their hysteria during this time period. And it is so wrong. It's not for everyone. So I will leave it there. Then I read The Tin Man by Sarah Winman. And this is a slim novel about the friendship of three people, a husband and wife, and then the husband's best friend since childhood. And there's a lot of complexity to the relationship. Both the boys had been abandoned by their parents and they had a closeness and bringing in the wife, you'd think that it would separate their friendship. And in a way it did, but she also added a new dimension to it. And it was a really beautiful novel about their friendship from their alter their alternating perspectives. And there's also a strong nod to Vincent Van Gogh. They, they go to Arles. Uh, one of them visits Arles to see where Van Gogh had painted. And it's just a beautiful little novel about relationships. Then I read, I have a lot of books this week. I read Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Have you ever read this? No, but it is on my list and I've been pausing it like <laughs> I have it as an ebook yeah and it comes Good. up on your queue and you can say deliver in later so I've been doing that for a while so but I want to take it in my next round I think that I, I recommend highly 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 this is so well written it's the story of a family uh Chicago Brooklyn Chicago and it is about being black in America and the expectations that you have of the next generation when you work really hard. And it's, so it takes place over a couple of generations, primarily focusing on the modern relationship of a, of a young woman who had an early pregnancy and her parents raised the baby and she goes off and has her own life. Like she goes to college still and her parents raised her daughter. It does have a 9-11 moment, but it is beautiful if that can be said of a 9-11 moment. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it's not, it's not gratuitous. It's a, I think it's a really important novel. I think it's beautiful in so many ways. And the, the expectations that we have of our parents and children. And like I said, the, the expectations of that, of the next generation, you know, you want them to excel and how do you not put tremendous pressure on them, but yet very interesting. I loved it. I loved the story of the family. Then, I look forward to reading it. Yeah. I, I recommend you grab that when you can. Then I read Gingerbread by Helen Oyemi for... What'd you think? Oh I've, my... I've, yeah, <laughs> she's wackadoodle. What is going on? I texted a couple of friends from book group. I don't understand this novel. What is... Are these dolls talking? Like we just kept... <laughs> so I normally, I don't even talk about books that I don't finish but I read three quarters of this and what, and then it was book group time. And I just threw my hands up. I was like, I have no idea what's going on. So I went to book group and I was like, I really hope somebody read all of this so that you can explain it to me. <laughs> and not one of the half dozen of us in book group had finished it. 
Interesting. So, so I have a new. You need me because I always finish the books. I know. Well, <laughs> normally I don't. If I don't finish a book, I don't add it to my have read list. I'm totally taking credit for the three quarters of. That's fair. Did, so are, did you finish it? Are you going to finish it? No. Okay. I don't. I don't. You don't care. Not enough? only that. Not only did I. Am I not finishing this book? But I did the like the good college try where I listened to the beginning of it on audiobooks so that I could sort of get into the voices. That was a giant mistake too. Between the voices in the book and the voices in the audiobook, I'm even I was even more confused. And it is a weird book and you have it to is. be you have to be Monica, help us out here. It's been a while since I've read it. I might even be pre-podcast. I can't remember. Uh, no, I think it might be on here, but fairly early on. So I don't remember the details. But I had read, I think, her previous book, which was slightly less weird, but still weird. So I was already sort of invested in her as an author and was expecting the weirdness. And I think that helps. Okay. I do remember being happy at the ending. Like, I, it, it felt satisfying. Oh, good. Well, maybe but I'll I do, skim, skim to yeah, the end. I mean, but I do like the weirdness. Yes. I think my love of weirdness is a little bit greater than yours. Is the gingerbread a metaphor for something that... (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Anyway, I read gingerbread, three quarters of it at least. Deciding not to finish it is totally valid. Oh yeah, I'm owning it. Sorry, Helen. I think she's doing okay. Yeah. Then I read Lights All Night Long by Lydia Fitzpatrick. This is a lot. I have two more. Oh my gosh. Crack on. This takes place in Russia and in like Oklahoma or something. It's about two brothers and how they take very divergent paths. It takes place, I I wanna say pretty modern because they have internet sort of and cell phone. The older brother has an addiction problem and the younger brother is a language savant. And so he gets selected to become an exchange student to America. And it's really about their brotherhood. I really, really liked this book. I feel like the characters were very full, fully dimensional. I loved reading about Russia and it is very much how I remembered when we had visited some of the apartment sort of tenement complexes that was ingrained in my memory. And then when he comes to America, what that's like for him. And he kind of pretends he doesn't speak English at first. And that trips up his host family. And then he establishes this great bond with the oldest daughter and, and how they forge ahead together. And, and there's a giant mystery that they're trying to solve. And the whole thing is really satisfying and really just a worthwhile read. Then from the, those little free libraries that are all over my neighborhood, I picked up The Girl's Guide to Hunting and Fishing by Melissa Bank. Have you ever read this? It's like, 20, I have not. it's almost 20 years old. Really? Uh-huh. It's oh. in the, I know, it's in the same vein as um, Bridget Jones's Diary, or that's what it's been compared to. And I've always been curious about it. It is delightful in so many ways. That's why those little free libraries are there. So you can say like, oh, I've always wanted to read this. Yeah, it's so great. It was um, primarily follows one character through her early, mid-teenage years 
through, I think her thirties and what it's like for her to date and how she views relationships and how she, how they contrast to the people in her life. And it is really funny. And this character is great. And Melissa Banks is an awesome writer. Uh, I highly recommend it for such a voice from the past. Find it if you haven't read it. And then lastly, I am reading a nonfiction book called Breathe by James Nestor. This is a book about the power of controlling our breath and how now in society, there's so much in this book, huge, hugely researched. I think he spent 10 years doing research about it. And what the catalyst was for him was he was having like terrible sleep apnea and snoring all the time. And he wanted to know why. And it goes back to human evolution, go figure. There's so many nuggets in this book. And one of the things that he's learning is that breath and our breathing, it's something that we obviously do automatically and we don't really give a lot of thought to. But if we are able to slow down and be more mindful to how we breathe, that it has health benefits. So concurrently, I'm taking, I'm doing that 30 days of yoga with Adrienne from YouTube. And I love her and I've taken her 30 day practices before. And I love how she does things. Well, at the beginning of the month, I noticed that the practice was called breathe. And, you know, she has breathing exercises in with the yoga and whatever. I thought that's great. And it wasn't until I picked up the James Nestor book that I realized what she was really trying to have us do was to slow down our breathing and be more measured about it and have folded into the yoga practice so that we can reach a different level of awareness with the yoga. So these two concurrent but different pieces have come together for me. And I feel like it's a great confluence of what I was trying to practice with the yoga and then just my own curiosity about mindful breathing. So yeah, that's been a fascinating read. Plus he's a, he's a San Francisco guy. So he's often making references to jogging in Golden Gate Park and things down at Stanford. So yeah, my reading stack is sky high this month or this week. Thank you. Well, I think that's it for us. So until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.